0: Hey, everybody, I'm Micah Rich.
1: And I'm Olivia Kane.
0: And welcome to the Weekly Typographic,
1: a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week.
0: Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How are you doing today, my friend?
1: Oh, I am just so excited to dive into today's podcast. I've been greatly anticipating this moment when I'm going to be sharing. My thoughts on why we keep on seeing death metal
0: lettering. <laughs> that's going to be a fun new nerd alert. Something that I know nothing about. And you were like, here's a trend I want to investigate. I was like, all right, you, you run with that. I think you were so excited about it. You were like, let's try doing the nerd alert first this week. Mm-hmm. So that's the plan. We're going to jump right into it. We're going to talk about this crazy new trend and see how it feels, right? Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about all the cool type links and end on that.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to like... Reel in all my research. I've been doing research all weekend um, and have learned a lot about metal. I certainly don't know as much as the metalheads out there, but I am slowly <laughs> learning, which is really important because I'm talking about a specific aesthetic from a subgenre of metal. So I want to be clear that it's not all of metal. There's a lot of aesthetics that actually like range in that genre. We're covering the subgenre of death and black metal specifically. I didn't include black metal in the title because that would make the title too long, but but ultimately (laughs) aesthetics are from black and death metal.
0: I don't think I mentioned this, but I have a lot of friends growing up that are very into death metal. So uh, I'm very curious where this is going to go.
1: It's going to be fun. I have an outline ready. We're going to talk about, like, why I'm even bringing this up. And then we're going to do a brief dive into the history, um, talk about, like, the subtext of the logo style that they used and, like, why that's actually important with why the trend is re-emerging. And then we're going to talk about the lord of the logos, Christoph. getting into him later, and how the trend is continuing today. So why are we talking about this? I have definitely been seeing... Heavy metal inspired lettering a lot lately. Specifically, this type of lettering that has really sharp edges and like a lot of ornamentation branching from the letters. And like the lettering itself is really illegible. So I started kind of taking notes on where I was seeing it. The first note I took was. Juan Villanueva's holiday greetings on Instagram. And Juan is a type designer. So I saw that type designers were clearly showing interest in this experimentation. Stuff is so cool. And then I just started keeping track of everywhere else. I saw a logo for Bella Porch at the end of her music video, build And if you guys aren't familiar, she's actually someone that became famous after lip syncing on TikTok. And like her music now is like very like handy coded pop. So like there's some tension. there. And then everyone, once I put out like a call for info on death metal, everyone started sending me the Phoebe Bridgers shirt, which is like an extreme metal logo for an artist that's like does indie pop. And then finally we have like Mission Chinese Food, which is like a trendy restaurant with a history of cool merch emerges with their death metal like logo. And then Grammarly, which is the most shocking of the group because that's like a browser (laughs) plugin to help you with your grammar. And then finally through research, I found Rihanna's. And Rihanna's death metal logo is actually really, really important for why we are seeing a lot of it today. So I was like, there's huge variety. I felt like, I don't know if the trend is full blown. It's not quite mainstream, but I just wanted to dive into it and talk about like why this like super grotesque really sinister style is emerging and like what it might mean about like the design world today. And I just learned a lot about metal along the way. So I'm going (laughs) to share my findings. I'm sorry. I know there's going to be metalheads that listen to this that are like, get your specific subgenres correct. And I have a really brief history, but just bear with me. Okay. In general... Heavy metal has like a huge visual history. It spans over four decades. So, like, there's a lot that we could keep on talking about, but I wanted to really focus in on one. But in general, metal aesthetics have changed over times. The foundation for metal aesthetics started with the 60s and the 70s, with psychedelic type movements and, you know, the Beatles and the Grateful Dead. They were pushing the groundwork for aesthetics that were like, Pushing boundaries in expressive lettering for the first time. We think about psychedelic lettering. It was like barely legible at some moments. That was a whole new thing back then. And then in the 70s, we start seeing bands see what happens when they have a defined logotype that is like theirs that they owned that like helps them identify themselves and their fans. We can think of Led Zeppelin or ACDC specific visual references. And then, you know, throughout time, there were certain motifs that metal got really obsessed with. So in the 80s, they focused on mythology and history, horror and fantasy. And in general, they were just trying to reject mainstream and commercial culture And I think that really informed the formal qualities of the aesthetic that started to develop. So we're talking about like razor sharp edges in typography to help convey the speed and the violence of the music. And in the 80s and 90s is when finally black metal and death metal emerges. And like that's where we're kind of focusing on today. And this brought the lettering style of really twisted and distorted letters that reflected the distortion of the instruments they had and the distortion of the voices. Black metal and death metal, metal. I listened to it. It's very, very intense. It's very scary. My heart rate was very high while listening to this. And so – In general, the logotypes really reflected that. And, you know, there were sometimes really branching letter forms and or they were dripping with blood and you could like barely read what they were saying. Death metal loved the themes of mutilation and the cultism and paganism. Lots of gory acts of torture being discussed. And something I found really interesting in my research is that according to Sergio Trujillo, who did a presentation on metal at A-Type-I, said that the logos can be interpreted as the literal instruments of torture or of the rotting remains after violence and torture. Oh, just that. Super dark stuff, like super anti-religion and black metal and then in death metal, so much about pain and suffering. And viscerally, it's just like terrifying music. Like this is what they played to torture prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. Like this is like not light stuff. This is just dark stuff that can make people... Feels very cathartic for people that love death metal, but can feel very scary for people that don't listen to metal. So, overall, I think what's really important and was like, yes, we can talk about the formal qualities of black and death metal logos. We can talk about like the branching letter forms, how they kind of like look like dead trees, basically, sometimes, or you know, that they're dripping with blood or sometimes show like mutilated body parts in logos. I mean, it gets crazy. But I'm really interested in a little bit of the concept behind the logos as well. The fact that all these logos were quite illegible is what they wanted. They wanted the (sighs) logos to be pretty illegible so that it adds to the inaccessibility of metal as a genre. They want people to be in the know. Oh, you don't have to read the logo if you love this band. You just know the band from the look of the logo, which I think is like pretty interesting. The logos were there to discourage outsiders and as a way to test the true fans because the true fans just knew by the literal shape of the logo and the art that was created by the logo, what the band was rather than trying to read it. I just think that's like an interesting, weird gatekeeper-y sensibility to Mm -hmm. logo design and one that is quite counter to what most logos are there for. That's a little bit of the history. I want to dive into this guy that's really important to the history and I think how black and death metal lettering has evolved. And that man is Christoph Speidel. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. His name is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E and then S-Z-P-A-J-D-E-L. So like Google this guy if any of this sounds interesting. He is literally called the Lord of the Logos. He has been working (laughs) for decades on metal logos and is one of the most well-known designers for... This specific type of black and death metal lettering I'm talking about. He has probably designed over 10,000 logos. Like, it is his true, true passion. And he has likely influenced a lot of the art that came out of this genre. And I just have to say, as an aside, I'm like kind of in love with him. (laughs) He's just so, so passionate about drawing logos. And I watched a really, really quick 10 minute documentary on him. He's actually like quite a gentle, soft, shy guy who just like, is just really passionate about sketching and they show him in interviews and he's just always sketching. He draws all these logos by hand. He like doesn't use computer graphics to help do these logos. And they're like very highly crafted. And he's just like a humble dude. So back to Kristoff and some actual facts about him. In general, Kristoff's clients, yes, they range within the metal scene. As you can see on his portfolio website, he has so many different types of metal subgenres he does logos for. But beyond the metal scene, he is like happy to work on logos that look like death and black metal logos. But for other businesses or events or tattoos, like he just has a big breath of clients he's like excited to draw intense, badass logos for. And I think he was really the turning point in us seeing like death and black metal lettering reach a different audience. And that kind of first happened in 2016. He was actually commissioned by Rihanna's team to create a logo for her that was actually used during the MTV VMAs as a big backdrop for her performance. And I think that really opened the doors to people seeing black and death metal lettering in a mainstream scenario. It was very, very crazy, I think, for the time to see something like that on like a VMA stage. But I think it like kind of opened the door. And even though there's like not very many pop artists that have (laughs) used that aesthetic in that big of a way, it really inspired him to work on personal projects where he did death metal lettering for things like Coldplay or Bruno Mars or Wallace and Gromit. And these were like all personal projects because he's actually quite interested in seeing what happens when you take something really familiar that has a totally different aesthetic and like input the crazy badass aesthetic and like super sinister aesthetic of black and death metal lettering. So Mm. he literally has said, that he's a, quote, a big fan of making badass logos for less badass things. I think that's so interesting that he's kind of thinking about how to subvert the existing aesthetic and make people kind of look, t- like, think twice when they see a work of his. I love that. So I think that really kind of bridges the gap to where death metal was this really niche underground counterculture and so maybe how we're seeing it spread. And Christoph being a starting point there. But the trend's continuing and I think it's like not only because of Christoph. I think there's actually many different reasons why we're seeing like an indie pop band or just pop singer try to utilize these aesthetics. So, there's like a few reasons. I think like subverting death metal's existing archetype is like interesting and it's funny. And it's still a nod to people that is like, if you know, you know, because it's funny to see a style that's like super demonic and sinister. Some Phoebe Bridgers songs literally feel like they should be part of a breakup montage in an indie romantic film. (laughs) The disconnect is like actually quite playful in a way and feels like bold and also like a wink to, you know, her fans that like see that merch and are like, haha, we know Phoebe Bridgers isn't like that, but isn't it funny? So I think it's like if you know, you know about Phoebe Bridgers and if you know, you know about like the death metal aesthetic too because they're both kind of speaking a language to the viewer. And then in the same way, I think graphic designers, we love that graphic design is my passion meme. You know what I'm talking about? We're like graphic design is my mm-hmm. passion. Is like in Comic Sans, there's a right. rainbow gradient, there's clip art. Like it's just <laughs> funny because like we are familiar with the design vocabulary and we love seeing things like flipped on its head. I think that's part of it. Last week, we were talking about designers breaking down barriers and walls for stereotypes within type. So like we think about masculine and feminine stereotypes. We were talking last week about like a feminine typeface might be considered like delicate and light and like dainty and masculine might be like dark and bold and heavy. Well, I mean, I don't know. There's like three female singers that are on this list that of like recent artists that are utilizing the style. And I think it's pretty interesting to start thinking about in that way is like what happens when we, move like feminine type from one end of the scale to the complete opposite. That's not, it's like scary and dark and what starts happening in our brains and are we breaking stereotypes in that way, in an interesting way? I think that's something to think about. And then mm. speaking also of just other general trends and why this might be happening coinciding with them, is we're just seeing this crazy ornamentation renaissance. Designers are pushing boundaries to experiment with adding ornamentation to letter forms in ways that you and me, Micah, have certainly been talking about for the past year so, you know, new takes on what Art Nouveau means, like new takes on like really, really expressive letter forms that aren't necessarily legible or maybe not readable, but are really interesting to look at. There's a lot of Art Nouveau revivals right now. And then what after, what came from Art Nouveau was psychedelic type. And then what came from psychedelic type? Metal. So the metal aesthetics. So I think there are like a lot of through lines into what people are already exploring. And people are just trying to get more novelty out of taking inspiration from the past hundred years or so. And then speaking of novelty... I think it's really important to take into context where we're seeing these logos. If we're seeing these logos for artists like Phoebe Bridgers or Bella Porch or Rihanna, it's not their singular logo. Like it's not like the Mm. heavy metal inspired Rihanna logo is on all of Rihanna's albums. It's not. Because I think like right now artists, specifically musical artists, but other artists can embrace variations on a theme when expressing what their brand is. And I think there are fashion brands that do this and all sorts of different things. Like we can think of the heavy metal inspired logo for Phoebe Bridgers as an outfit, but not a uniform. So I think that ability to play with different aesthetics and looks is just something that speaks of the time. And then where's this going? I do not know, but I have like an inkling that it might follow a similar trajectory to Black Letter's path. And that was something we talked about when we first revived season two of the weekly typographic is Black Letter has been like existing with subcultures mainly for its most recent history. And then because Black Letter has stood for anti-establishment and individuality within these subcultures, it eventually becomes commodified by fashion brands that want people that love the fashion brand to think that they're, you know, super individualistic or anti-establishment. So ultimately, we're probably going to see more commodification (laughs) of this style. I mean, I even think about why is Grammarly creating a logo using this style? And I couldn't find the answer to that online, but I think... Like you go to Grammarly's website, it is like the most really basic, just super clean, techie (laughs) website, like light colors. Everyone like looks warm and friendly when you look at their like staff page. So I'm curious if brands are going to be like, try to find something about themselves that are anti-establishment and use this as a way to garner some attention or make something sensational. I don't know, but uh, I just think it's really interesting.
0: I mean, I have to ask, where did you find the Grammarly Death Metal logo?
1: I found it on, okay, of course I'm going to forget the artist name, but I got referred to a lot of artists that have an Instagram presence that do lettering, and I found one the lettering artists made a Grammarly logo.
0: But it wasn't just like someone who likes Death Metal logos making one for a brand that they thought would be funny.
1: No, it was someone that had a broad range of lettering experience, and... Some of that included death metal lettering and was commissioned from Grammarly to do it.
0: That's so wild. Yeah. I feel like the answer to that is just like somebody there thought it would be funny and cool and wanted it. And it Mm -hmm. it wasn't some official brand project, I'm sure, right? It's that like in the no exclusivity mentality behind it of somebody there must have just thought like, Oh, this will be funny, and if anybody finds it, you know they won't understand it, and that will be funny.
1: Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah. So I don't know. I kind of want to make some like metal lettering and put some words in there that make no sense um, for the league. Yeah. No, I was thinking if I had time, I would have done it for this uh, episode. For but the cover. I just think it's really interesting, and I think we're going to see more of it. And I just want to know who's going to be who's going to be tinkering with the death metal <laughs> next. <laughs>
0: Very, very fascinating niche stuff, my friend.
1: It's so niche, but (laughs) it was really enjoyable. All right. Back to regular programming, Micah.
0: (laughs) Back to our regular programming. That was fascinating. That was interesting and way more in-depth than I thought anybody could possibly go.
1: I mean, same. I did not think I was going to go deep down that rabbit hole, but (laughs) I did. And here we are. So there's also an article in the newsletter this week that helped inspire some of my research and goes through the history of metal lettering. So make sure to check that A delightfully out.
0: delightfully boringly designed article considering the topic, you know, like very mm-hmm. very standard typography that it's all set in with just interesting references.
1: You can see the Wallace and Gromit heavy metal uh, death metal lettering in there, though, which <laughs> yeah, that might just that was... make it worth it.
0: Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, okay, so we I mean we also have a a bunch of other fun links this week. I'm especially interested in, in this first link that you guys found for womenintype.com. What the heck is this about?
1: I was so excited about this. I think Steph digged this up. Um, it's a site that's dedicated to kind of rediscovering women's role in type history, which if you know type history, you know, uh, in typical canon, not many women are mentioned, but this kind of digs up a little bit of that history with both photographs and a bunch of articles, which I found really exciting. Um, it's a research project. They say that it focuses mostly um, on women between 1910 and 1990 involved with two major British companies, the Monotype Corporation and Linotype Limited. Um, they, you know, talk about how women were part of departments um Commonly known as drawing studios. And we're really working on the early development of typefaces that usually their work would be handed off to like bigger named type designers that we kind of all know today. But first of all, it's an awesome site. Like it's really fun to navigate. The photography used on it like really takes you back to this. Old way of doing type. There's other great things besides articles um, revealing the history of women in type. You know, there's a reading list of people that have revealed this before if you want to go more in depth, um, which is really exciting. And then at the end, you can finally find who worked on this. And it was actually. A three-year research project, which is really intense, um, worked on at the University of Reading in their very famous Department of Typography and Graphic Communication. Um, It was led by Professor Fiona Ross with principal researcher Dr. Alice Savoy, um, who I know Alice from doing other typefaces uh, in the recent past. I've seen her name a bunch. So just like just really cool stuff. I hope to continue to see projects like this become available and unearthed.
0: It's so wonderful. I absolutely love the design of all of this. It's so engaging and fun to browse and play with. And it makes jumping into the details really entertaining and makes you just want to learn more because it's so fun to learn from. Yeah. I'm a little bit jealous of a lot of the design here. I think we need to steal some of these ideas as inspiration.
1: Yeah. It's kind of the beautiful opening is like you, the landing page is this collage photographs of... People working in type studios. Then you scroll down, and the collage opens up to reveal. Very nice. Yeah, Uh, yeah.
0: Big fan. So cool. Great find, Steph.
1: Very excited about this one, and I think good resource to just have in your back pocket because you just like never know.
0: Absolutely.
1: On the other end of the design spectrum, we have an article from Josh Como.
0: I think that's how you pronounce it. He's one of those internet people that I've followed for a long time but never actually heard his name out loud, even though he's done a lot of like coding talks and stuff at conferences. I just never paid attention. how to actually say it. All good. But let's say it's Josh Como. And it's this interesting article about CSS. It's, you know, he particularly lately has been specializing in teaching advanced CSS to beginners, which is a little bit interesting to me. He's got a course out that is like very interactive learning, which is kind of, He couldn't find, like, an online learning platform that was interactive enough, so he coded one. Wow. (laughs) So that you can learn and play at the same time. So this is kind of a hint at some of the depth that he gets into, where it's basically, yeah, gradients and CSS are relatively easy, but how do we make them look really good? Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that I think... The designers and the developers struggle with where the designers have these tools like in Illustrator, for example, or something where those tools are crafted to be able to form a different type of gradient than is the default coding on the web. Mm -hmm. And so you go to mimic something that looks really good and it isn't quite right and the designer's not super happy and the developer's like, what? I made the gradient with the colors that you gave me, you know?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. He has some great visual examples and a little bit of color theory, which is why I actually brought to the group chat and was like, hey, this is really cool. And then Michael, you're like, oh, my God, he's great. And I just found this. So it's beautiful. meeting Because I'm not coding every day, but I am interested why some gradients look freaking terrible. (laughs) And this (laughs) explained it. Why sometimes you create a gradient and there's like a weird gray in the middle. And it's just something once you see it, you're going to recognize it. And even talking about how gradients are mixed using an RGB color space versus an HSL color space starts making a lot of sense. And personally, again, I don't code, but I use HSL, which stands for hue, saturation, lightness, to make some modifications on just like any design projects I'm working on that are in RGB, and I need to literally, someone's just like, can you make it just a little bit darker? I just manipulate HSL values rather than RGB. So I just think Mm. it's a good thing to have in your back pocket. And then to see how gradients work with both those color spaces is really interesting. He builds this really cool tool that, Micah, you probably understand a little bit better than I do. But talking about generating gradients and it gives you code to help create like really beautiful, saturated gradients that don't go into this clunky awkwardness with the two colors converging with like a random gray. That's just the average of two or gp values you know
0: yeah even i use tools like this when people make them and they're really good it's kind of like easier than sometimes remembering how to do it yourself so mm-hmm. it's cool that he not only made the tool but also made this in-depth explanation of why the tool works the way that it does so that you can learn as well yeah big fan Mutual of us. respect for this guy love it
1: all right continuing forward I really like this project.
0: <laughs> I knew that you would. I found it, I think, on Twitter or something, and I was like, this is up Olivia's alley. This is all This is all Olivia.
1: Oh, my God. So I'll actually talk about what we're talking about. Right. <laughs> it is a project by Ryan Bugden, and it's an identity system for Strawberry Western, which I didn't know about this brand earlier, but it is Kisa Shiga's independent and anti-waste fashion label. So... Ryan designed an identity system and custom type for this. The identity is bilingual. It's drawn for English and Japanese readers. But I believe the inspiration comes from Kisa's identity of being Japanese and Irish, which is pretty interesting. And the brand ethos as well gathers from the global energy of Kisa's hometown of Queens, New York. So it's kind of this really cool, like, weaving of a bunch of heritages and identities. I just have to say, this type, I've never seen anything like this. I agree. I
0: agree. It is absolutely unique. And it's funny that you mentioned the, you know, I think I missed some of that background. The English and the Japanese, certainly, I I know that that was there. But the Irish background, it's like, oh, now that you say that, certain circle combinations and patterns that come out from it, kind of a celtic influence i can almost see it in the background very interesting
1: yes especially the type that's used in the logo and some of the other pieces of the identity only has counters that are mostly circular like there's some like teardrop counters but like i'm describing this and you're probably like how does this typeface work and
0: (laughs) yeah this is one you have to see to believe
1: I don't know. But I also this page that's part of Ryan's portfolio is a beautiful collection of images. It feels like a type specimen, but you know, you still understand what the identity is. I'm just so unique, so beautiful, man. Big <laughs> fan.
0: I've say at the bottom it links to some of his other work, which I was confused at first. I didn't realize that's what it was. Links to his other work, and I was like, "How does this fit in?" And then I clicked on it and found it was a different case study. I don't know about you but I'm a big fan of this brandless case study. If you're on this and you look at it, it is the most basic thing you could do and I love it. It's so minimal and like boring and well done. Oh it's great. Oh my
1: gosh. I love a good rounded corner, radius corner rectangles.
0: Right. Is yeah. The
1: epitome of no identity.
0: <laughs> and also awesome I think just to realize those came from the same person. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah.
1: Good range. Finally, you actually brought us this last link. We're sharing today. And I think this is like a really interesting project, but you have more background. So I'm going to hand the mic to you.
0: Yes. Okay. So this project comes from a longtime friend of the League. Jacob Ford is his name. We met many, many years ago back when we were living in New York. And the League kind of did like a small meetup in person once upon a time. And so we got to meet and hang out in person. And he's just like this wonderful, splendid human and he's involved with this kind of artist designer co-op in new york kind of a small indie sort of thing where they work on projects that are creative and kind of outside of the box and usually have some sort of like big intention behind them and this is no different so he sent over this kickstarter for this book the apparent quarterly So they collected a bunch of essays and comics and stories and news and articles, all these different things with a range of different topics that it's worth reading this whole thing to understand what they're interested in. But I just love that it's like this cooperative community of artists who are all really trying to give a platform to talk about important topics in a creative and artistic way.
1: One of the most interesting things I found, you know, it is a Kickstarter page, but they actually give a lot of background. And if you're interested in like how libraries and publishing work, something that they're really advocating for is that publishers allow libraries to buy ebooks the way they buy physical books. So I guess the way that a lot of libraries work right now is that publishers will rent libraries' ebooks, which essentially makes them consistently paying a lot of money for ebooks. So it's basically, you know, like the Adobe Creative Cloud model where we don't own Creative Cloud, we basically buy a subscription to it. That makes Adobe a lot of money. And they're really trying to fight back that notion that libraries aren't able to own ebooks, which I find like very interesting. And they go into mm. some of the politics of the Internet Archives open library and how the publishers have sued the open library before because I'm sure there's a lot of money involved once you start getting texts that are available to everyone. And it's a pretty interesting philosophical idea, too. So, If you're interested in how the movement of literature and things flow in this world, it's a little bit more integrated into a corporate manner than I think we'd like to think. So pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. Diving deep into like the ethics of publishing and copyright and how to bring that back to the people who are doing the creative work. Mm -hmm. It's neat. It's cool stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'm here for it. All right.
0: Ba that's it. That's the fun stuff for this week. We'll be back next week with more fun links. And no, just kidding. We will be back next week with a fun interview. Uh with somebody that I think is gonna be very fascinating to listen to. So we will see you next week and on the internet. Da-da-da-da!